You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, a global leader in identity security. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Trust Issues. In recent weeks, a significant breach involving Microsoft has captured our attention, showcasing the stealthy tactics employed by threat actors. Today's guest is Andy Thompson, who's CyberArk Lab's offensive security research evangelist. Andy last joined us just a few months ago to break down another couple of high-profile breaches on MGM and Okta, respectively. Big names, big breaches, no organization is impenetrable. This time, Andy sheds light on the intricacies of this attack on Microsoft, and he highlights lessons organizations can learn from the incident. He also unravels the timeline of events, examining how the attacker, the notorious Cozy Bear threat actor, gained access to Microsoft's systems through a legacy non-production test tenant account. We'll explore the nuances of password spraying, a method that proved effective in this case by avoiding standard rate limits and detection mechanisms. As we explore the anatomy of the attack and the attack flow, Andy provides insights into the assumptions of misconfigurations that facilitated this breach and what organizations can do to mitigate similar risks. From protecting non-production environments to the importance of identity threat detection and response, ITDR, will uncover practical steps organizations can take to bolster their cybersecurity posture. In a landscape where cyber threats continue to evolve, understanding these tactics is crucial for staying ahead of the curve. Here's my conversation with Andy Thompson. Andy Thompson, CyberArk Lab's Offensive Security Research Evangelist. Welcome back to the podcast, Andy. Thank you, David. I really appreciate the uh, invitation back. (laughs) It seems that we keep coming back here with a data breach after data breach, huh? Yeah. You know, the last we spoke was back in November, and I did not expect to see you back so soon. But as is the nature of these breaches, I guess it's not entirely surprising, unfortunately. But it's still good to see you. You as well. You as well. Um, Anyway, so today we're going to talk about a recent attack, or is it a recent breach, or are they one and the same? It happened in January to Microsoft, and you and the CyberArk Labs team have done a great initial analysis of it, which our listeners will be able to find on the CyberArk blog by the time this episode comes out, and we will link to it in the show summary. To start things off briefly, and then we'll go into more depth as we go, what happened? Who did it? What do we know and what don't we know at this point? So I guess let's tackle that briefly. And I also sort of threw in there the the difference between a breach and an attack. So I don't know what you want to, what you want to touch upon first. I'll kind of go through the whole process here, go from soup to nuts here. All right. Okay. So what we know so far is that Microsoft recently announced that they had been compromised. And data had been exfiltrated by a nation state threat actor, APT29, 
Iron Hemlock, Dark Halo, whatever you want to call them, Microsoft calls them Midnight Blizzard. This threat actor is tracked back to uh, the Russian intelligence agency, the SVR, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Anyway, so it appears that this nation state actor who's incredibly well known for their covert actions had somehow compromised a legacy or test environment that Microsoft was using or wasn't using actually. And through some very simple attacks, they were able to get initial access and then take advantage of some over-permissioned OAuth applications. This allowed them to create new applications and ultimately leveraging these privileges were able to read the inboxes and attachments of some very, very highly privileged users. Executives within Microsoft. Absolutely. So executives, legal, the IT, the threat hunting teams. Wow. All of this information was subsequently exposed and exfiltrated by Russian state actors. I mean, this is some really scary stuff. And I don't think the public really grasps the severity of this issue. This is legitimately a concern. We'll get more into the details of the attack itself and the different steps in a few minutes. But I guess from what you've already said, there are a couple things I want to ask. One is, what did you throw out a lot of different names there? APT29, Cozy Bear, Midnight Blizzard, Midnight Oil. I don't know. <laughs> like, why do they have so many different names? And what or they, it, whomever it may be, it's a group, right? And what did they exfiltrate? This group, named by the federal government, uh, goes by APT29. But like I said, they go by a ton of different names. The U.S. federal government, yes. Yes, the U.S. federal government. Okay. The reason they go by all these different names is because many different organizations are tracking them, and they have their own naming conventions and whatnot. And so, again, whoever is the one that's facilitating their threat research and threat hunting calls them by different names. But I think the most famous moniker that they go by is Cozy Bear. Uh, not to be uh, confused with Fancy Bear, that's the military arm of the Russian government, but this group is the intelligence agency. And so they are the ones that are imbued with the power to collect information for the best interest of the Russian government, whether that be proprietary data, government information, all sorts of information that provide the Russian government with information that is uh, that serves their best interest. So this isn't just some lone wolf in their basement with the hoodie, as we always see in those stock images. <laughs> no, these are not the standard script kitties that we've heard so often about in previous data breaches. Mm -hmm. But no, this one is a government-sponsored espionage group. And so they have been known to do some pretty incredible hacks. I mean, we've seen previous situations with the Democratic National Committee of the United States. There is um, the Republican National Committee, even SolarWinds. SolarWinds was actually the supply chain attack that happened back in like 2019, 2020. Just remember that was the terrible, terrible New Year's. Yeah, I remember that too. Must have been 2020. Exactly, exactly. We learned to dread in the IT industry the, the last week of December because something inevitably is going to go blow up. <laughs> but this is the organization that perpetuated that supply chain attack. 
And so their motives, their TTPs, tools, or tactics, tools, procedures, whatever, they are above and beyond the standard threat actor that we see. I'll, I'll go back to the actual attack in a moment, but to just dig into the name just a little bit more, is there any reason for all these bears in the name? I have my own speculation. The bear is a quintessential thing with Russia. And so I think the theme of the bear's cozy, fancy bear, I think it relates to the Russian state animal, I think. So then going back to the attack itself or the breach, and actually that's something we haven't discussed yet. Mm -hmm. Are attack and breach one and the same when you see this terminology here, there, and everywhere? No, actually it's not because an attack is more aptly named a incident, okay? So somebody is actually trying to break in or acquire data or something, and that's an incident. An incident doesn't necessarily result in a data breach, which a data breach is sensitive information leaking out beyond the constraints of an IT organization. So yes, this was an attack, this was an incident, and this was a breach. So the breach happens... And what was exfiltrated and how do we know any of this? What we've been able to determine based on the public statements by Microsoft is that certain information was disclosed specifically regarding Cozy Bear. This appears that they were doing reconnaissance on themselves, seeing what the threat hunters actually knew about themselves. So they were kind of looking around and see what the bad guys, which actually, I guess, is the good guys in this circumstance. They wanted to see what the good guys knew about themselves. There is also some additional information that we don't know. We do know that they were able to access the mailbox of high-level executives, legal, and other departments, but that particular information wasn't disclosed. There's so many unknowns here. Was it potentially happenstance that they were able to get to the executives and the legal? Because if they were seeking information on themselves, why would they be going to Microsoft executives or Microsoft legal? Oh, I think once they got that initial foothold, realized that they were able to do reconnaissance on themselves, they had unfettered access into the mail infrastructure why not? Why not go after those top executives and see what sort of information? This is figuratively icing on the cake from a threat actor's perspective. Why not fulfill your mission? But if you can get additional incredibly high value information from senior executives, why wouldn't you? So then back to the attack itself. What are the key events of the recent attack on Microsoft, starting with the initial breach? The initial breach was instantiated through a very simple attack method called password spraying. This is done by slowly trying to authenticate over a, an extended period of time through different IP addresses and things of that matter. This is incredibly relevant because there has been a recent botnet that has been discovered by another nation state. And it's using these sorts of botnets to really, we call it go low and slow, to authenticate over time. The reason you do this is it goes under the radar of many SIM solutions because they, they usually detect 
authentications in rapid succession and the account gets locked out. None of this happens in a password spray. This password spray, I think, I mean, we can get a pretty good visual of what it is, but maybe if you could just sort of define what a password spray is. I'm trying to think of the official way to explain it, but it is a slow, prolonged, distributed attack on a authentication system that is done in a way that prevents technical controls from blocking it. So preventing the account lockout, preventing even detection from it. So if it test, uh, tries to authenticate and log on one time, maybe an hour later, another time, maybe two hours the next time, it doesn't do it consistently. It's not going to do A-A-A-A-A-A-A-B. It's going to come from a random array of usernames, random array of passwords. And again, it's randomly spraying credentials up against the wall and seeing what sticks. That is a password spray. When it's random, is it just 100% random or is it potentially gleaning data from generative AI or something like that? Oh, yeah. Great question, David. The answer is the quintessential IT answer. It depends. Mm -hmm. So there's different ways to facilitate a brute force attack, which is essentially what this is. You could go through a password list. So maybe gleaning information from previous data breaches, which is very, very possible. You could do a brute force like you do AAAAAB. But you could also, just with reconnaissance information that you gather, create custom word lists. And this is where generative AI could actually really provide value in helping create dynamically created word lists based on all sorts of information that it automatically gathers. So we don't know exactly how the password spray occurred and from what data it was using. But what we do know was is it was able to authenticate into a legacy non-production system. And that's a real problem. What is a legacy non-production system? When organizations, data IT departments are working, they don't just have the system that everybody's working on. That's called production, right? Organizations will do testing, they'll do development, they'll do all sorts of things in other environments that are very, very similar to the production environment. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is often mistakes are made. You'll see sometimes, and not in this circumstance, but production data, PII, might be used in these QA and dev environments. In the event that a QA or dev environment is compromised, then you have literal PII that's being leaked. Personal identifiable information, right? Yeah, personal identifiable information. You could have health information, credit card information. The, in previous jobs I used to work at, we actually had made these sorts of mistakes. We identified them and corrected them. But yeah, we previously had, you know, personal identifiable information in development environments because they used that data for testing. Okay. Now, what's interesting to note here with the Microsoft event is that they weren't using production data, but they were using a production password. The same password that was being used to log into this legacy non-production environment, in my opinion, was very much so a production credential because it allowed them to ultimately pivot into the production mail servers. Is that why there wasn't a multi-factor authentication part of the flow? Quite, quite possibly. 
again, what we often see in these non-production environments is that not all the security controls are the same. Don't get me wrong. They should be, but just for ease of access, um, there are reasons for operational reasons, ultimately, that certain things like multi-factor very well may have been neglected in this circumstance. And so that was a real issue with this particular breach because even if the password spray had been successful, the multi-factor should have been able to prevent the authorization and the access. In your blog post, there's a graphic that outlines APT29 or Cozy Bear's steps in the Microsoft attack. How did each step contribute to the success of the operation? And maybe it'd be best to just sort of briefly go through the steps. Okay. So let's start with the initial initial step one. It really boiled down to reconnaissance first, identifying what sort of information, the target, the user, that sort of stuff. So it can be done through several ways using something to scan the IP range to find which applications are publicly accessible. You could also do something like using social media to find potential users that could be attacked. This is similar to what we saw with the MGM breach, mm -hmm. where the threat actors use social media to zero in on their targets. And so once they identified the credentials that they wanted to password spray and the targets that legacy non-production application, that's when they facilitated that password spray and subsequently got in. So after they got in, they were able to bypass the multi-factor and that's really where they started abusing OAuth. Maybe this is the right time to ask you this. Maybe it isn't. You can tell me. What's Golden Saml and what role did it play in this attack? Okay, so Golden Saml is a method, it's a tactic that threat actors have used in the past to bypass Saml authentication and pivot from the cloud into on-prem data centers and vice versa. This was a tactic that was used by Cozy Bear in the Solar Winds attack back in, like I said, 2019, 2020. However, this was a tactic discovered by Shaked Reiner, a researcher here at CyberArk Labs, all the way back in 2017. So what's notable about Golden Saml is that although it wasn't used in this particular Microsoft hack, that we at CyberArk Labs identified this and that Cozy Bear was the very first threat actor that was discovered using this tactic. So that's what's particularly notable about CyberArk Labs and our relationship to Cozy Bear. It was specifically the abuse of the Golden Saml tactic. How many of the details that we're talking about in this conversation are speculative and how much of it is stuff that we know? And then of what we know, how much of that is from Microsoft and how much of that is from you and the CyberArk Labs team? Most of the information, if not all, actually it is, it was provided to the public by Microsoft's announcement, explaining the circumstance, explaining where the misconfigurations were. So there is very little speculation there. However, the things that we had to assume were why there wasn't 
multi-factor, why there was an over-provisionment of a particular role. So as much as Microsoft did a fantastic job, and, and don't get me wrong, they actually did a really great job of disclosing a ton of information in a timely manner, no less. It's an important point. Yeah, they did it in a lot of information and in a timely manner, which don't get me wrong, not everybody does. Mm-hmm. I feel that there wasn't a whole lot of assumptions made. I mean, outside of just, again, a couple of misconfigurations had to be assumed. The data really does speak for itself. So ramifications for Microsoft, aside from reputational, do we even know what the full extent of the ramifications are or could be? No, not at all. I mean, we do know that this threat group was looking for information about themselves as far as TTPs, indicators of compromise and whatnot. So that's great, right? But we don't know what sort of information was disclosed relative to proprietary information, communication with senior executives. That sort of stuff was not disclosed in this public announcement. This is called proprietary information. I don't expect that they will disclose that. So as far as I'm concerned, we've been given about as much information as they're going to share with us. That's why we have the knowledge of the threat actors who are doing reconnaissance on themselves. But beyond that, I don't think we're going to get any more information. So based on what you've told me about Cozy Bear, it sounds like they are a professional organization. Do I have that? Do I have that right? Yeah, this is right. They are absolutely a professional organization. I mean, they have payroll, they have insurance, just like we do. They even have an office that they clock into. And so Threat Hunter has actually been able to determine by analyzing code, who is the one that's behind the keyboard writing the code. They can tell at times in which the attacks are going on, typically what time they clock in, when they might out go out for lunch. They even take vacations just like you and I do. So is anybody trying to stop them or is it more about trying to stop what they're trying to do? To others as opposed to actually trying to stop them. I think everybody's trying to stop them from nation states to commercial cybersecurity companies. Even we at CyberArk Labs are actively trying to bring awareness to these types of attacks and prevent them from happening. You do have to understand that nation state actors are vastly different from the other types of threat actors that we see in the wild. If they're going to get in, they're going to really try harder, exponentially harder than you'd typically find. But there are things that organizations can do to address similar misconfigurations to what Microsoft had going on in this particular case to enhance their cybersecurity posture, I think. And I guess that's more, that's more of a question for you. There are a lot of things that can be done from a best practices perspective that could have provided a barrier to prevent this threat actor. I mean, simple stuff like, I don't know, multi-factor best practices, like keeping your prod dev QA environments off the internet, making sure that they're not easily accessible to threat actors. These are just standard best practices that should and ought to be followed. The other things that could be done would have been from more of a um, incident threat detection and response, ITDR. This is something where we should be actively looking for certain indicators of compromise. So logins that don't have multi-factor, whether an OAuth application is idle, 
making sure that you're not over provisioning certain OAuth roles or just roles in general, making sure that you're monitoring for particularly malicious commands or even just commands that your standard users aren't going to be running. This is a really simple one, but how many people in accounting will be running the IP config command or how many of people in legal are going to be running whoami.exe? These things do log events and can be tracked. And this is a way to detect a threat actor in your organization because what really separates Cozy Bear or APT29 from all the other threat actors is their willingness to sit and wait. Their dwell time is beyond any other threat actor. And so they're just biding their time, slowly waiting for the time to strike. And even if they're being as slow and sly as possible, they will still create events that could be detected and responded to. Uh, you mentioned some of your suggested IT DR detections and responses. And for the listeners who are interested in checking those out, would also direct them to the the blog again um, on the CyberArk blog about this particular attack slash breach. How can organizations effectively integrate these ITDR recommendations into their cybersecurity strategies? Well, it all boils down to having a plan, understanding what tools you currently have at your disposal, mm -hmm. learning how to integrate those tools, and, and really having a game plan, doing tabletop exercises, and really understanding the types of attacks that are happening in the wild today and trying to position how you can respond to those attacks. I think it's uh, something that CyberArk and CyberArk Labs absolutely can help with because no two organizations are the same. No two organizations have the same priorities, different crown jewels, as they say. And so it's not a single answer. It really depends, right? It's that quintessential IT thing. But the point here is, is that there are best practices that should be followed. There are things that we should be monitoring and responding to. And if we don't do that, we're just opening the front door and the back to these nation state actors, all the way to the financially motivated criminal groups and even to the script kitties. So just follow the best practices, try to detect and respond. And I think you're going to do a pretty good job protecting an organization. And folks can dig in not only into your recommendations, uh, ITDR recommendations on the CyberArk blog, but we've also got numerous other posts and material on ITDR there. So it's a good resource to check out. What do you think the essential takeaways from this attack should be for the global cybersecurity community? I think that a big takeaway is that no organization is perfect. We're all humans and we all make mistakes and best practices aren't always going to be followed. But 99% of all the data breaches that we see in the wild today aren't caused by vulnerabilities but they're caused by misconfigurations. And so for that reason, we can't rely on one particular product to prevent it, right? You've heard the people say, oh, there's no blinky box, there's no silver bullet. But there almost is with defense in depth. How can organizations enhance their cyber resilience in the face of persistent and sophisticated attacks? You know, you can't necessarily rely on one product to save the day. Maybe you can't rely on two, mm -hmm. but if you slap enough controls on top of yourself, right, layers, you're going to have that impermeable barrier, right? It's like Swiss cheese. You have one slice of Swiss cheese. It's got holes, but you know, you slap more and more on. You might have holes in the different slices, but they're in different positions, different spots and different sizes, right? 
So at the end of the day, if you put enough controls on top of a vulnerability or a misconfiguration or whatnot, with enough defense and depth, that's really going to adequately protect an organization. So there is there is some hope, of course. Again, it's all about defense and depth, mm -hmm. really understanding what your priorities are, what is the most relevant thing to your organization, and wrapping layer of controls around that in order to prevent these nation states, these, you know, even financially motivated threat actors, just preventing threat actors in general is really the key. And it all depends on what those crown jewels are, will depend on what controls you put on. But the key word is controls, plural. It's not about one single thing that's going to save your day. It's not going to be EDR. It's not going to be a firewall. It's going to be a combination of all these things. I do think that what is really relevant here is that these threat actors are primarily going after identities, okay? Because identities, that's really where the privilege is. This is where the data is. And if you can abuse a legitimate credential, whether it's provisioned correctly or not, this is what the threat actors are really, especially these espionage groups are going after. They're really looking for this data that it can be accessed through identities, whether they be machine identities, whether they be human being identities, whether they're SaaS applications outside the constraints of your traditional IT world. The key here is, is that I'm concerned that threat actors are getting into organizations by compromising identities. There you go. I was going to ask you how identity figures into all this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, again, it all boils down to identity. Like I was saying earlier, an identity can be anything from a standard user in HR to a doctor in an operating room, all the way to that IT admin that's running the domain controllers or in this circumstance, the mail servers. And all of them, if you think about it, have some level of privileged access, okay? A doctor may have access to medical records, and that's relevant, right? We have people in HR that have employment records and things like that. So the thing is, is the standard previous conception of privileged access used to just be with IT. And threat actors know that's not the case anymore. And so this is why they're targeting senior executives. This is why they're looking at the legal teams, because it's not just IT anymore. They're abusing the privileges of people outside the IT organization to facilitate their espionage and reconnaissance. Andy, I've not yet said this at the end of a podcast interview yet, but here, here I'm going to do it for the first time. Let's not do this again soon. <laughs> No, let's not do this again soon. But unfortunately, I feel like it's inevitable. I don't want this to happen again, David. Let's talk about something fun next time. Let's, something, let's talk about something cool yeah. that's not going to be about an epic data breach. But you know what? I'm sure I'll see you soon. <laughs> Andy, thanks so much for coming back onto the podcast again. Thanks again, David. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trust Issues. If you like this episode, please check out our back catalog for more conversations with cyber defenders and protectors. And don't miss new episodes. Make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts. 
And let's see. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, drop us a line if you feel so inclined. Questions, comments, suggestions, which come to think of it are kind of like comments. Our email address is trustissues, all one word, at cyberarc.com. See you next time.